0: back to another episode of dslr film new podcast i've got Devin here devo cut aka the man from chicago what have you been up to my friend
1: oh just way way too much time in the in the edit cellar as i like to call it um way way too much time trying to get caught up and trying to build a workflow for after effects i didn't realize i know how to do so much in after effects but i don't know how to do any of it quickly so i've been working on trying to improve my efficiency so I can get as fast as I am in Premiere with After Effects. Uh,
0: shortcut keys, is that the issue? or?
1: Yeah, well, shortcut keys uh, as well as uh, macros. And, and there's so many ways to do things. Like, for example, I don't know how to take whatever object I'm currently looking at and make an, uh, a rolling edit to that line. So like setting its in and out points per se. The way that I do it right now because it, I found it to be the fastest back when I was learning it was Control-Shift-D, which takes whatever you're, whatever layer you're on, and it splits it into two. So it, 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 it in a way makes an edit because then I can go to wherever I want something to stop and do a split and then delete the second layer that I just made by splitting the two layers. So it, it's, But I know that there's probably a better way that actually just does the job of shortening it to make an outpoint right at where that playhead is. So there's little things like that that I haven't learned all the shortcut keys too as well as i'm sure there's a few macros i'm going to need to make just like I did in premiere um just because the more and more i'm in after effects here the more i feel myself really dragging and not uh, making good use of my time i think uh you know i don't use it as much as i probably should but i think it's like control
0: bracket is your cut for ins and outs in after effects i normally the way i work is uh import it directly from my timeline in Premiere. So everything's already cut up to the size I
1: need. Oh, no, yeah. If if I'm doing visual effects, in this situation, I'm doing a person talking and then several lots of graphical elements thrown on top, supporting images and videos and things like that, that all animate in and out of the composition. So like when you drop a photo because somebody says something about, you know, nuns and you put in a photo of a nun, you know, shortening that so that it's only there for the time period I need it so I don't have a giant... The timeline that has every layer using the entire link because I know I can change opacity and I'm going to add transitions anyways so it's not like it's necessary to crop it but for the sake of my own humanity of looking through uh all my layers to know when something is happening that's kind of really what it's for is just visually I can go oh this layer must be active because part of it is here so it's 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 the little things but it's things like that that uh are kind of the last hump for me to really get a lot faster at the software now that I've I, I know most of The shortcut keys and the workflow and how to build things. It's really optimizing it for. Individual projects.
0: You know, the one thing I never learned in After Effects that I probably should have learned is some of the coding commands that go along with like individual timeline interaction. Uh, you no, know? you don't. You don't need to. You don't need to learn any of that. Yeah, I mean, occasionally I want to type really. in like you, some you stuff just, and make it wiggle. You know,
1: you copy and paste, man. That's it. Uh, no, it's true. Everyone else that is an actual mathematician has done all that work for me. So when I do a lot of inertia bounces and stuff like that to add a lot more life and animation, if the uh, composition calls for it. Uh, Yeah, you can just go on Google and people just post out there. They're like, hey, this is what the animation looks like. And this is the code that gets it done. And a lot of it is based on inertia. So a lot of it is based on how fast you made an object move is how hard it's going to bounce. So it's not even just like animating uh, keyframes for bouncing or like when you want the bounce to start and when you want it to end or anything like that. Uh, there's, there's a few useful ones for if you're going to repeat keyframes, that's like a good one to have memorized, though. I think it's built into the right click menu. Uh, but this isn't an After Effects podcast, so I don't need to keep going into
0: this. Man, you got me like thinking about After Effects stuff. Uh, there's one, uh, I think it's a Red Giant plugin that I used uh, quite a while ago on a music video shoot and I wanted it to cut to the drums every time the bass drum hit, and I was able to set up a specific audio filter in the timeline using uh, this plugin. I, for whatever reason, I can't remember what it's called. I think it's like Impact or something like that. But uh, every time that frequency hit in the audio, it would automatically cut to that shot and then come back to it again. And it was amazingly simple. It made my life so much easier. And those sorts well, of things, I like, would, I didn't even know existed. See, I, I exactly have no like idea before.
1: how to do that. Off the top of my head, I would think the way to do that would be, um, I know that with the Red Giant plugin, you can choose which frequency bands you want to relate to what keyframes. So I guess you could set an opacity keyframe uh, with some kind of exponential system. So like the moment that the audio went so far over a threshold, it would basically go from zero to 100% opacity, which would then make it on top of whatever layers you put it on top of. Um, but something that some people don't know, because a lot of people go to Red Giant for the the audio, so that they can sit there and make things move according to different audio frequencies. Because the built-in audio plugin for After Effects just affects overall amplitude; it doesn't let you dive into each frequency. But most people are walking around with like you know uh, copies of Audition and even Premiere, where you could easily sit there and like put high pass filters and EQs and stuff like that to get just the band you want. If you're only going to do one or two bands export that throw it in the timeline and animate off of that and it works just as well then as having the red giant plug-in where you can like say i want you know 10 uh, hertz to 30 hertz or something like that to be these keyframes so well
0: and i cheated too because i contacted the studio that recorded the album and was like hey can you just give me the bass drum track for this <laughs> and they're like yes we can send you the bass drum track so they sent me that is ad- the
1: best solution exactly if you're doing music yeah
0: and then you know you just run a gate on it so that it's completely isolated and then set your frequency and bam it's awesome okay this is not an after effects podcast <laughs> <laughs> we do have a little bit of news to cover. So let's go ahead and move on to the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. First up is something old and something new to me. I apparently missed this completely when it was announced in, what, 2014? It's finally going to be released. This is an Indiegogo campaign. Uh, this is a kite-style flying uh, drone. It's called the Photokite. And this thing is pretty interesting in that it works completely differently than most uh, drone systems. You're not supposed to really pilot this, instead it's got a tethered string similar to a kite with directional information set up based on the position you fly it into the air and then it follows you based on the tension on the line. Now looking through this at uh, some of the different features, it comes in a little tube, it's fold out, 15 minutes of fly time. This does look really handy, and the nicest thing about this is actually the release price is $349. Uh, That is a very affordable option. They're about to start shipping this. Now, you're not benefiting from the cheaper price that was available in the Kickstarter, or excuse me, the Indiegogo campaign, but you also didn't have to wait for two and a half years for your product to get to you. What do you think
1: about a kite-style drone at that price, Devin? I think this works for a lot of people. I think they nailed down the main problem with drones is that they still aren't easy to fly a uh, I mean, has made some bounds in terms of using an iPad and like geographically making locations and altitudes and waypoints. And then it flies itself as well as some basic like orbit and hover commands. Um, but what they, one thing I think they bring up here that's huge is the fact that it doesn't require a GPS because it is being tethered. It can work indoors. Um, or in other places where you wouldn't normally get GPS re- uh, reception under bridges and stuff like that, because of the fact that uh, it's using that tether to ground itself to know, uh, you know, how far I am moving from point to point. It doesn't need to find home. It doesn't need to have complicated robotics to, for like recovery and stuff like that. It just it it needs to, uh, you need to just pay attention to where it's being pulled. Um, and I think that it's that kind of basic easiness where it's like this thing. Is never going to fly away from you. You're never going to really lose it. You know, maybe if the uh, your string breaks or something like that, uh, it'd be interesting to see how it deals with that. But for the most part, for the most part, you're not going to lose it. It's super portable, too. I love the way that they've built this thing to fit into a small, um, long object, which is a lot easier to pack in a lot of different camera bags and stuff like that. Still... Uh, the price is really good as long as you don't have crazy expectations because, for one thing, it's like there's not going to be a gimbal system. Um, and so far from a lot of the footage I'm seeing, it's not going to be super steady, super stabilized like something that's GPS located. But I think for the majority of people who are looking for a few quick shots, who are out with their friends or having fun or something like that or on a trip, it almost puts it into that little area where, like, this is a great consumer drone that, as long as you have permission, you can really use anywhere. And while it may not be the best drone maybe for filmmaking with, like, large range and flying over buildings and stuff like that, um, not that it couldn't be used in a video setting, but I I think it's really – I think it's targeted towards consumers. Couldn't this be a crane replacement? It's not steady enough. It's a whole different look. First off, I hate – Uh, And I was guilty of it, too. I hate talking about things being a replacement where somebody's like, oh, we got a DJI Ronin. It's a dolly replacement. I'm like, no, there's a look to a DJI Ronin. When somebody moves a camera on a gimbal uh, on a Movi or something like that, I know know that they used a gimbal system. I can tell what it looks like. When people are on a glide cam, I can tell it's on a glide cam. Glide cams float. Gimbals, like, lock on, but they still move in a weird, like, side-to-side up-and-down motion that you don't get with a crane or a dolly. So... Uh, I I wouldn't say necessarily that it's a replacement, but in terms of getting high-angle shots, yeah, I think this is a super cheap, very portable, and potentially, not that I've used one, but potentially easy-to-use system uh, for getting some of those shots. Uh, But like I said, you don't have a gimbal head, and I haven't seen the steadiest video from it, uh, but still, you know, this might be a case where having a little bit of aerial video is way better than uh, no aerial video at all. So, Well,
0: I think, uh, for me, the reason it it looked attractive is... A the price and then B the ease of getting something you know ten to fifteen feet above your subject and even that sort of uh, takeoff approach where you can you know put something on the ground and then fly it up over the items uh, mm-hmm. that's an awesome uh, establishing shot that you can get of houses of buildings of people taking off in a car walking away from something and I can see that uh, kind of be in the next uh, slider move like all right just give me a quick <laughs> aerial right here where it goes up and and gets this one shot and as long as you turn it away from the road. Hope you're fine plus <laughs> perfect selfie
1: stick replacement like the right? most badass selfie stick it does seem like the ultimate selfie stick watching people walk around as they look back at it um take someone's but eye no, you're, you're right there's lots of places where this could be used and it's really the price i think is the best feature of it i think that really makes it approachable so even though it may not uh, have the full capabilities of a more expensive system uh, with camera stabilization and everything else, it's still it, it's still cost effective. It's still something that for very little money, uh, you can pick up and start flying right away. And there isn't a whole learning process. And there isn't like a whole remote control that you got to figure out. Uh, from what I've seen, it looks like it's really intuitive to operate. And I think that that's huge. I think that not, I haven't used it, but it looks to me like they've really nailed that part of it. And I think that's important.
0: All right. Now moving on to the next thing, and I'm actually working on a shorter format because I've been realizing some of our shows are going like uh, an hour and a half and that is getting ridiculous. So I'm going (laughs) to hit the next item here on the list. This is actually the slope and it is an interesting take on the positioning of a GoPro. So this is two GoPro stories in a row. I know a couple episodes ago, we kind of talked about how GoPro may be losing market and how I'm Kind of I got them out and we were, were using my GoPros uh, a couple days ago for no apparent reason and now i'm excited about my GoPro again no no reason why it, it hasn't gotten any better. trust me, uh, but this thing right here for those of you listening is basically a maybe what a ten sided dice sort of shaped item
1: uh yeah that's what they said they were inspired by a like uh, dodecahedron or something like that kind of a shape? So
0: it's a cradle for the GoPro that sits underneath, locks it in, and allows you to basically set your GoPro at multiple degrees and angles in order to sort of get a more interesting look at your GoPro. And if you've used a GoPro in the past, you've probably had issues with either having to use some sort of mount, adapter, or so on. But if you just want to set it on something and you don't want it to look straight at you, uh, this is a really low-tech piece of plastic that goes with your GoPro for about 20 Twenty nine dollars. There's not a lot to it. Should be shipping fairly shortly, and it's kind of interesting, Devin. What do you think of this as an
1: accessory? Is twenty nine dollars worth it? Uh, 29 dollars feels a little expensive to be honest. For a piece of plastic, um, it do- yeah, but it, I mean, it does seem to be well made. I'm not discounting that. Like this looks like a piece of junk. It should be cheaper. Uh, th- this does look like a really solid product. It looks like it's really well thought out. Um, it's something that I feel like I've I almost feel like we talked about it before because I, for some reason, have memories of this thing. Um, The Kickstarter campaign is, or the
0: Indiegogo campaign, man, I'm getting this messed up today, is fairly recent, uh, December 5th. So
1: I don't know if we've... Maybe uh, maybe it failed on Kickstarter. Maybe that's where I remembered from. But this, uh, you know what? I've used something like this. Uh, A buddy of mine 3D printed something that was similar to this, and I've used it. And it actually does work out great if you just need a place to put something. Um, For the most part, I find that 90% of the time using the clamp with the gooseneck is going to get me the angle that I want as opposed to a place to set it down. But this has the advantage of that small size. Uh, I mean, they make lots of little, I don't know, things you can do with it where you can, like, composite two shots because you have identical angles so the perspective is relatively the same. And they talk about putting two together to make 3D And a few other things like that that I don't think are necessarily going to be the strong selling points for, but it's so small that it's like there's no reason not to just package it with your GoPro if you're like heading out to just do something fun or, you know, you just keep it in the bag with the GoPro and it at least gives you a few options without needing to break out uh, one of those friction arms or, um, you know, the GoPro gooseneck clamp thing or anything like that. So me, I mean, me personally, I haven't gotten a lot of use out of the kind that I have Uh, and I I think that it's a little bit pricey. It probably would be nicer to see this around 20 bucks. Uh, But still, it it seems intuitive and it's interesting. And I'm like, yeah, that totally works. Keep in mind that while they advertise a bazillion angles, I forget how many, do they have a total number? They should. Because that's marketing. One of the things Um, that you can buy for- 20 poses, I imagine that there's probably about eight that I would actually use. But there is 20, so that's always nice.
0: Now, one of the things I use for my GoPro uh, when I take it out that's really simple and very easy and probably about $29 or less, this is a, a Nasty Clamp from NastyClamp.com. And it's just a double-sided set of clamps with these sort of rotating uh, lock arm pieces that you can pull out and extend as far as you want. The clamps are easy to get around the GoPro, whether your cage is naked or if your GoPro has something on it. And then you can clamp this to pretty much whatever, and you can bend this in any direction you want. So it makes it really easy to sort of get whatever angle and attach it to uh, taller surfaces, lampposts, and so on. Uh, I don't know. For $29, I agree with you, a piece of plastic, that's uh, a bit much. Maybe they could do something to where they could knock that down to like $10, and then the perfect $10 accessory is a piece of plastic.
1: But it is for me, it is a really good size wall. It may be lacking in like... Being able to attach to a tree or a pole or something like that, because obviously you need some kind of surface that this thing's going to sit on uh, where something like uh, other accessories with uh, adjustable arms and things like that are usually more secure and substantial for attaching. Uh, I still see it being super useful uh just it 's like if it was a ten dollar thing just to have it in the camera bag with the GoPro. And that way you could set something up in two seconds if you're walking around, you're on a hike or something like that. You just want to like, oh, let me just set this up on this ledge over here. You can actually kind of give yourself a few angles at it without needing to pull out gear or carry gear with you and set up a bunch of stuff. So I still think it's really smart, really clever. I like it. Uh, Just maybe a little bit too pricey for me.
0: Now, a question I'm going to put out there for you guys, and somebody might know what this is, and if you do, send us an email or uh, post it in the show notes, but... I saw at one point a similar to this little uh, clamp right here, device that actually had a stud welded to it or attached to it somehow on the top. And that stud was your basic light clamp. And you could go around and just attach this to any kind of structure, squeeze onto it, tighten it down. And of course, these have like little floating feet on there and then attach your light or whatever kit you wanted. Uh, It was especially handy for use with the uh, Manfrotto Magic Arms because it has enough clamping power that you don't have to worry about it coming loose. Devin, have you seen that? Do you know what I'm talking
1: about, or am I just... Crazy? I know exactly what you're talking about, and it's actually pretty common, I think, on a lot of grip trucks. Uh, I just don't know the name because they always have to give things such crazy names, <laughs> like um, the Wacky Arm or the like Crazy no, Fist. No, yeah, they, well, like uh, what's it? They they call um, those C clamps that you would use for uh, speed rails for setting up a lighting grid. The smaller ones are called baby clamps because um, originally I was thinking maybe that was called like a, a baby clamp of some type. Uh, but having stuff welded to those, uh, what do you call them? Um, uh, vice grip, arms. I believe, is the vice actual grips, term. Yeah. Having stuff welded to those vice grips is super common on grip trucks. Um, there's a, I thought like there was Forbes. a
0: professional solution, though, because I've seen cheapo ones that somebody just tack welded them together. And then I've seen real ones that look like it was actually made to be that way. And I haven't been able to find the real ones, and I, of course I could go to a machine shop and have them make me a few of the fake ones. But uh, Devin is showing this, a picture right here. What do you got?
1: Yeah, this this isn't exactly what you're talking about, but this is basically uh, your light tops, and they're welded onto a C clamp. Fifty one dollars. Well, it's 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 from BNH. It's a proper photography tool, but um, you could probably find it cheaper. Or uh, if you've got somebody who welds, this isn't that hard of a job to do. Uh, but still um i see lots of stuff like this all the time so i know what you're talking about and i'm sure it's out there uh i just can't think of the name of it oh here we go matthew yeah did you see the one yeah there you go right there so this one actually has two big things also attached to it too because i'm sure it's probably supposed to hold on to um uh like reflectors or something like that but uh still this general structure the vice grip with the light head on it so it's out there uh, lots of people use this kind of stuff on grip trucks and whatnot. Looks like so. the term
0: you're looking for on B and H is Matthews clamp or Matthews grip. Uh, apparently, those are the vice grip style attachments. That is. This one kind of works. Yeah, I mean, this one has I like an interesting this chain, chain thing. <laughs> that's kind of cool there. To go
1: around something, I'm not sure how uh, often you use that. But here, you've got a pretty substantial uh, uh, grip and on this. That's guy. That's got one pretty off
0: of the back as well. That's pretty nice. Yep. All right, so uh random lighting stuff aside, moving on down the line here, Devin, you put put this in the show notes. This is Did of I? course the X10. Uh why are we talking about this camera again cuz man, I feel like I've I've complained about it many many times. What's...
1: We're talking about it cuz the price dropped. Okay, $2000. So does that make it interesting? Does that make the XC10 No, from no Canon... I just want to mention I want to mention that Canon is dropping it and I feel like that's probably because no one is buying them. I'm pretty sure. I you have yet to see one in the wild. I've yet to see people interested in it and talking about it. Canon keeps telling you, "Oh, it's like a B camera for a C300 or something like that." But for that price, you can hell you can get a C100, you know, Mark One. So uh, almost. So what it you know what exactly is this camera for? Lacking all these features, but it's I think it's one of the, it's probably one of those things that just it just failed because. Canon was trying to make a lower-priced video camera that does 4K, probably to try to compete with mirrorless. But they didn't give give you an ability to put on your own lenses. And uh, you know, I'm not even going to complain about it, like the uh, lack of audio, you know, XLR input or anything like that, for being something that's dedicated to video and not having a stills uh, or a strong stills to it. But uh, not being able to put your own Canon glass on it, or even the mirrorless Canon glass. I think that was what killed this product, really, in my opinion. I mean, maybe it's making huge success over in Japan or something like that, but for me, I think that uh, it's not doing well, and I think that's because most people are like, ah eh, it's just not worth the price. I can find better B-cams for my Canon glass, you know, like a uh, 60D or something like that, uh, as opposed to using this.
0: Well, you've got the, uh, and Mitch and I kind of talked about this on one show, the RX10 from Sony, which is... A fairly large uh, point-and-shoot camera offers up most of the features that you get out of the XC10, and it's about half the price. Uh, You're looking at about $1,200 for the RX10 Mark II. That's capable of shooting 4K. It's got an internal 1-inch sensor and generally uh, pretty good low light, really well-performing camera, and it's compatible with uh, Sony's hot shoe XLR adapter, which means audio directly in, full-fledged audio... Bits, Mm -hmm. which man, half the price, same capabilities, pretty much. um, I'm guessing Canon packed some color magic into the XC10. Have not used it other than playing around with it in store and did not like it. Now, one other price drop, well, we're talking about price drops here, is actually the Panasonic GX8. I don't know if you've seen this, Devin, but now it's falling well below $900. Here's a bunch of them from Canada. And from uh, basically the the gray markets in South Korea and so on for $863. Now, the GX8 is missing a few features over its bigger brother, the Panasonic GH4, in that it does not support live HDMI out, no headphone monitoring, and a few of the other things that are crippled similar to, what was it, the G7, I believe. Uh, But it's a pretty sexy camera, very capable and yeah. it's in the sub nine hundred dollar range with interchangeable lenses. You gonna jump on this, Devin?
1: Uh, n- probably not. Like I'm, I'm not interested right now in a B cam. Uh, or the kind of B cam I'm interested in is one that's a full second unit. Uh, if I'm building out for that. Uh, I mean, because the only reason I'd see using something like the XC10 over. Uh, An RX10 or the GX8 is because of the fact that uh, if you're really dedicated to Canon and, like, you're shooting, like, Canon Log or something like that or EOS Standard and you want everything to match and, like, for some reason, instead of getting a 60D or something like that, you're like, uh, I want something that's a bit smaller and something that's easier for someone to use, then if you check off all those boxes and XC10, oh, and you have, you know, more... You're willing to pay more just because it has Canon on it, uh, then NXC10 seems to be like the camera for you, but uh, you're right, there's so many better options that actually let you use different lenses, which is just a huge thing, I think, uh, you know, maybe we take for granted now because we're so used to the DSLR market and even most of the video market with your FS5, FS7 and all these cameras being uh, interchangeable lenses that, Uh, we just, we expect it, even if it's a video camera, which traditionally, unless it was super, super pricey, you wouldn't have interchangeable lenses. Uh, I think now we we just expect it. We're like, come on, it's 2016. Let's, if it doesn't have interchangeable lenses, uh, then it shouldn't cost $2,000. So
0: I used to be happy on a few shoots with the XF 300 from Canon, which is like, uh, I want to say a half inch or a quarter inch, uh, sensor 1080p camera yeah and and that was great like you someone would hand you one of those oh, that guy's shoot. a workhorse yeah the the 300 the xf300 and the xf305 i believe uh both were sporting that uh new codec or it wasn't a new codec it was just container file from yeah. canon the xm what was it xmf xmp is that? xmp thank you and uh i don't know it was a it was a great camera but no interchangeable lens just a zoom rocker some audio inputs on the side a nice place to pop your mic on there I mean still something I've, I've seen news guys wander around with now before we dive into the next one I got one question to throw at you here Devin and uh, this came from Michael he was asking uh, what your setup was for running gun news shooting in general Michael's a, uh, a photographer for news and he's trying to figure out how to
1: transition do you have any recommendations for him uh well, there's you know it, it's an interesting question. One, uh, just like you, a lot of my kit comes from somewhere else when I'm on location. Uh, most of the stuff we shoot is is gonna be Sony XD cam, uh, which shoots to a disc, which sounds weird, but it's actually super super awesome and efficient when uh, we can shoot something. And then run back to uh, the bureau and shove a disc in and hit play and that gets sent over to New York or wherever else and then we can go back out or we can go do something else. Um, As opposed to if you're using like expensive memory cards, then you want to keep those cards and you don't want to just hand them out to the station. Uh, You usually sit there and actually play back and then like, you know, take your cards, erase them and go through all that. Those freaking Panasonic
0: uh, cards that are custom (laughs) and super expensive. Yeah.
1: Which, uh, which I mean, is they may go to now because just about every camera they're looking at uses, if it's Sony, it's using the S by X or the S by S or whatever card. So, uh, but those big cameras, and like you stated in your question, uh, yeah, you say it's big and clunky, but they have all the features. They're usually very well balanced cameras, ND filters, all that kind of stuff. And there's a reason it's because, yeah, you can do your job super fast, like you stated. Um, but, when you're freelancing and you're on the T4I, and you're trying to make it faster, uh, it's one of those where, in my case, it really depends on the build out. Uh, if I'm going to go do a news thing, I've like I've talked about on the show before. I've tried out the the RNG uh, run and gun from uh, Lunchbox or uh, Logger's Lunchbox. Yeah, Logger's Lunchbox. I've tried them for a power solution, audio solution. Um, I've tried my own shoulder rig there's other times too where I just shoot with the body itself Uh, but most of the time it really depends on what situation you're going into if I'm going into guerrilla filmmaking I keep most of the stuff in the backpack and I only pull out what I need. If uh, I'm going to be running around getting a lot of stuff and I don't care if I look bulky because either we've got permits to shoot there or it's like documentary style, so everyone expects there to be a camera or something like that, then I've usually got a shoulder rig. I'm throwing extra weight on it because I think that's important for the look of it. Um, And uh, having some kind of uh, DAC that attaches to it. Me personally, I still don't have something like a Tascam dr 70 I'm still using uh, two little iRigs. Uh, That using DJ's hack, I'm able to get some nice XLR audio. I run it straight into the camera. I don't do dual systems. Uh, I'm just happy with the audio my GH3 produces. Other people might not be, but I am. I haven't used the T4i extensively, so I don't know if that audio works for you, but I think in most cases it does. I think people really complain too much about uh, bad preamps because they all remember the 5D Mark II, uh, as well as some of the older cameras, which really paid no mind to having decent preamps. So uh but really it's one of those that it depends on your setup. Here you talk about like using a monopod. I really don't. I never use a monopod. I'm either going handheld because I've got a shoulder rig uh or I'm going with proper sticks. Um so if you're trying to run around and get lots of shots, if you're not going to add weight to the camera and shoulder mount it, then I would say a monopod is necessary because I personally hate uh the kind of jello look you get when you try to handhold something so light and so tiny. Uh, DJ's good at it. We've talked before in the past about how DJ holds it close to his chest. He's over there laughing about it. Uh,
0: <laughs> hey, I've actually but, got a recommendation, though, that's really good here. And this yeah? is uh, super affordable. It's a very good low-light camera. good down to 1600 ISO. Something I've sent out to as a recommendation before for people in this situation. And it's, it's super cheap. Uh, this is the Canon XF100. It is a baby brother, so to speak, to the XF300 and 305 has many of the features, including XLR inputs. Uh, You can generally pick these up used on eBay for around $1,000. And the lens on this is very decent. The camera itself is very decent. And it is a little workhorse that's very tiny. doesn't weigh very much. And it allows you all the proper things that you would want to get out of something for gathering news fast. Uh, It is not... Something that's going to incorporate your current camera, which is a bit unfortunate. But at the same time, for $1,000, it's pretty well worth jumping on.
1: The, okay. uh, the The only things I can give you really quick to finish this out is um, uh, really it depends on what you're shooting. And then that depends on where – like that, that will determine where your slowdown is. So if you're doing documentary style, your problem is probably battery life, replacing lots of batteries for audio systems and camera systems. Uh, And it probably could be, you know, potentially changing lenses. So if you're changing a lot of lenses and you're trying to do documentary work and you've got all these primes, maybe you should sell some off, get yourself a nice zoom that has a low enough f-stop that you can get the job done with a zoom. Or at least for most of the range so you don't have to swap lenses as much. Uh, At the same time, too, power. Can you get, like, your audio system and your camera all running off of one brick? Even if you don't go with a giant um, Anton Bauer gold mount or V mount battery, you can still go with some Sony batteries and wire them up to camera power uh, with dummy batteries, as well as wiring them up to the audio, your wireless audio system, if you've got that going on. So that's all things to consider, too, because having one giant battery, you don't have to replace that often is way faster than replacing a bazillion batteries. If you're on a film set. Um, then having something like uh, a map box can really help you because you can just drop NDs in and out depending on what the shot calls for. Um, For the most part, though, when you're talking DSLR, you're inherently going to have a slower process because everything you listed about being faster is what's not available on DSLRs in general. When you get to the prosumer, like he talked about with the XF100, yeah, you start to get dedicated knobs for gain and everything else, but you're in a menu-based system, and there's really no way out of that menu-based system unless you go with a different camera. So that's just something to consider is that, yeah, inherently you're going to be slower, but I don't have a kind of silver bullet for you to speed up your entire workflow. It really depends on what you're shooting.
0: One other recommendation, I didn't realize that it had been superseded, the XA20 and XA25 seem to be the replacements and those feature even more robust kodaks as well as wi-fi built in so you can run the camera remotely still comes with the xlr inputs and is in the same handy form factor and they've increased the aperture on the lens in the zoom range holy crap the zoom range 26 to 576 millimeters full frame equivalent that is that is pretty sexy actually for (laughs) such a cheap little thousand dollar camera so great now dj's gonna buy another camera no i do not need another (laughs) camera all right moving on down the line to audio let's talk about this for a second Devin. you put this in the show notes this is five free songs what is this about sir
1: uh they'll send you five free royalty free songs so go do it download it maybe if you want um it looked like a pretty cool setup here. What they're planning on is $200 a year, uh and that gets you access to the entire library, which is way different than the normal pricing model of paying per song. Uh normally you pay per song because some people will use a royalty-free track, you know, every week and other people will maybe use it once a month. So that's why usually uh it can get costly if you use a lot of music and it usually makes a lot of people avoid maybe looking at paid for sites now i'm a big fan of audio jungle uh i've used their stuff a lot i like most of the stuff that's on the site it's not all perfect but i found a lot of stuff for decent price maybe eight to sixteen dollars a song and you know it works well enough for me and the quality's good so i've used that a lot uh and i go to it all the time being like well first let me see if i can find something that perfectly matches whatever i'm trying to edit and then if I don't really find anything I'm in love with, then I'll kind of go over to my royalty-free collection that I have and like sort through that and be like, is there anything here that like kind of works as well? Uh, because I'd much rather spend $10, $15 to get something that really fits the mood perfectly than to go into royalty-free and muck around for a bit and find something that kind of works. Or one or two options that, uh, yeah, okay, this kind of is okay. Um, for me, it's totally worth the cost to pay money for music licensing. Uh, in this case... Uh, I you know I haven't seen their selection yet. I kind of want to see their selection before I buy them for two hundred dollars a year. But this is something I'm considering, and so I just thought we'd bring it up on the show because um, DJ, we've thrown out a few great resources for getting stuff for totally for totally just free. This is an interesting, uh, I guess you could say, reaction to all those other stock websites that are all running on a per unit price. And this is one big price. And then use as much as you want. Like you don't have to think about it. You don't have to be like, how much is this going to cost me? You can just go online, find something that you really love and download it. Uh, It's still unknown how extensive their collection will be and how fast it'll grow. Uh, But right now they're giving out five songs to try to get people signed up on their newsletter and get people interested in their product.
0: Impu, or, uh, was it in, in Computech, I believe, is one of the uh, sources. Also, uh, I'd link here in the show notes, uh, a friend of mine, Jim uh, Brodhagen, he writes a lot of stuff for me on a regular basis and various other artists on SoundCloud are available, uh, they share their stuff creative Commons, So you can download it as long as you do proper attribution to the creator. And he's got a few tracks for uh, some of the stuff he's done for me, actually, up here. Uh, there's a great uh, Better Watch Out song that I used in one of my shoots. <laughs> and uh, shivers down your spine. He did the outro music for me on a feature length that I was working on. But if you head over to SoundCloud and you kind of make a personal relationship with some of these artists a lot of times they will either give to you or allow you rights to use their songs in your productions, and it can be for little or no cost because a lot of these guys are just sort of looking for notoriety. Uh, Jim um, is an exception. I I pay Jim, so thanks, Jim, for your hard work, and uh, he's not going to give you anything for free, I don't
1: think. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, because he's learned his lesson, right? Yeah, bad, um, bad example since uh, Jim gets paid. A long time ago, uh, I want to say... Uh, pfft, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, something close to 10 or 8 years ago, uh, I was trying to do an online series about cars, and uh, our producer actually reached out to uh, Girl Talk, uh, which I guess is a popular musician these days, uh, and got full permission to use any of his music we wanted to in any way, shape, or form. Hold on a second, though. Uh,
0: Girl Talk is a sampling band, so... Yep. Wouldn't he be yep. by allowing permission sort of be that's, giving up permission to all the songs that he samples into his own songs?
1: Well, that's and that's that's exactly it. And then um It's a can so, of worms. Yeah, it's it's a can of worms, and so while we were like, yeah, this is great. We realized that he, on most most of the time, he doesn't have licensing on most of the stuff he does. That's why a lot of his stuff will exist kind of on YouTube and in this gray space where it is definitely original work. It's not like somebody's listening to his song to hear uh, somebody else's song. I wouldn't call it piracy, but you know how the, uh, I guess the space is for music these days where if you sample a drum beat from somebody else, you owe them money. So, uh, but it is something where... Uh, I think that uh, he's a really great artist and in this case his content wasn't completely original but simply reaching out to great artists in our area uh, gave us a lot of good results. What we actually ended up going with was uh, there was a teacher who taught music who just on the side on the weeks and everything like that would just compose music for fun because it was his love and everything and after talking with him uh, at the school it was like yeah he doesn't care he's like ah, just link it to my website and that's it that's all I care about. So you'd be surprised what kind of great talent you can get and actually. Access to some really great music. If you just ask around and develop relationships and friendships with these kind of people, uh, buy them a beer, see if there's common ground. So it's it's something to consider. But it just goes to show you that we had no connections back then. We had no connections in the industry or anything else. We were just starting up on YouTube out of nowhere. And uh, we were able to get some really great music just because we asked around. So a lot of people who, like, are trying to find websites that have a great collection of free music, it's like, stop that. Like, go to SoundCloud. Go out in your local community. Go out and talk to artists and get around. And, like, you'll find way better stuff than you'll get if you just keep, like, searching on pirated websites or, like, searching for, like, free, like, royalty-free content. Because, like, there's there's good royalty-free content out there, but I'm telling you, like, the the few pieces that are really good, everyone uses and everyone knows is royalty-free because there isn't that much. And that's because, you know, anyone who does good work should more or less be paid for it. So... That's kind of you know what my opinions are of it, what I think of it.
0: All right, time for me to answer one question from you guys. This came from Ryan, and Ryan is a 5D Mark II owner, and he's asking if it's worth it to upgrade to the 5D Mark III. And the reason he wants to upgrade is he's got dead pixels in his 5D Mark II and is having issues uh, with that camera in general. Uh, my answer to you, Ryan, is... A, depending on your budget, it may not be worth it to upgrade to the 5D Mark III. There are three or four things to think about when you're going between those two cameras. One, if you have a 5D Mark II or you change out your... Broken down, dead pixel, apparently poor quality. 5D Mark II for another one. The 5D Mark II to get to where the 5D Mark III is, you're going to need to run a few things on it, like Magic Lantern. The the hacks allow for audio monitoring via the headphone port or via the output port, and uh, some other control issues that are available in that camera. If you go to the 5D Mark III, you can get all those features built in from Canon. You don't have to hack it necessarily. You do have the option to go raw at uh, 1080p if you really want to on the 5D Mark III. Uh, but it's budget-wise, you can get a used 5D Mark II for far less than a 5D Mark III. I-, I would almost replace it and save that money for a lens or other accessory. So that's my recommendation. Devin, you have anything to add to that?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, also to consider maybe why you're interested in a Mark III. Not that a Mark III isn't a fantastic camera with low great low performance. light and everything else. No, I know. Great low light performance. But considering, um, you know, if you don't care about even if you don't care about 4K, I mean, the first A7S, um, you know, it, it, but it, it's different because you don't get the photography part of it. If you really like that um, mirror and you also, you know, maybe don't get amazing autofocus, but for uh, very low cost, you can put your canning glass on top of that. Uh, But I agree with DJs that you should probably just be looking, putting that money towards better lenses or possibly better lights, depending on what kind of stuff you're shooting. I keep I keep getting angry with people because no one buys lights. They always just try to, like, buy faster lenses. And I'm like, you got LED lights now that cost nothing. Why don't you just get some lights? But now, I will say on the photography
0: side of things, the 5D Mark III has some very noticeable improvements. The AF system is far superior to the 5D Mark II. The light performance, as Devin mentioned, so if you're shooting uh, weddings or portraits or anything like that, uh, it's definitely an improvement there. The build quality of it is excellent. And of course, the other thing that the 5D Mark III has that the 2 does not offer is the dual memory slot option for both CF cards and SD cards. It has a built-in headphone jack with controls for that. And all the features are very nice. And the build quality of the 5D Mark III is excellent. Uh, So if you're doing stills and video and I, I stress that and video, because if you're just doing video, the 5D Mark II is probably fine for, man, I, you know, if you have one and you're shooting on it and you're happy, continue to shoot on it. Uh, I, I don't know how you kill pixels, though. If you uh, check the show out and you find out that we answered your question, let me know what you did you, to you kill so pixels, many pixels. Dude, I don't,
1: I got, I've got hot pixels. I got pixels I have to fix in post back when I was shooting with my T2i. Really? Um yeah, I mean the camera is supposed to, when it does its sensor cleaning, as far as I remember, is supposed to identify those hot pixels and automatically fix them. Uh, or I have do a, a pixel room refresh full or of something cameras like that. And
0: I have zero cameras with hot pixels oh, or maybe. Dead pixels. Well, maybe it's
1: just a Canon thing. Maybe Canon's like having hot pixels. But uh, I shot somebody's short film when I was first getting started on a T2I uh, with you know the stock lens. And I want to say I maybe have only shot like a couple of hours on that camera before we shot it. But then once we shot it, I realized I had like a red pixel up here, a blue one down here, and a green pixel over here that was just persistent throughout every single shot of the video. And especially, too, when you take the fact that they're downsampling and the way that the codec works and everything else, it turns that one bad pixel into like nine fuzzy bad pixels. Uh, So it took a bit of work in post, a little bit in After Effects in order to counteract that. But... Still, which is relatively easy to do, guys. You just kind of draw a mask around it, and uh, to delete it and feather around it so that like the other pixels' colors merge into that missing space. There's lots of tutorials online because this is a common problem. Even though DJ's never had it, uh, it may have something to do with uh, sensor overheating. I don't know, uh, but I know exactly what you're talking about because I've had the same issue too. And now, when you have how that, you, how
0: does it affected with video? Because you know you're pixel binning with video, so is only, it as only as well? on
1: video? The, the pixels aren't noticeable on photography. It's only in video that the pixels come up.
0: Huh. I wonder, because they're averaging uh, local photo sites, if the right. brighter one ends up winning out as the average over the others.
1: It, it could potentially be, and then something wrong with that one. Uh, but yeah, if you've got that problem, I think in the menu there's a pixel refresh. You probably have already researched this. It's been a long time for me. Uh, but see if there's a way to do it inside the camera's firmware, because I'm pretty sure you can tell the camera to try to identify those. Canon instructs you to like put the lens cap on, put it in a dark place. So it can find those pixels and fix them. And if that doesn't work, yeah, that's a lot of post work. I mean, you can kind of create filters and things to automatically do that for you, but uh that the if it's if it really requires that much work in post you should probably be looking at a new camera potentially so. i'm
0: looking on ebay right now and uh used canon 5d mark ii bodies are in the 800 hundred dollar range
1: so that is <laughs> which very is good for photography affordable. man the mark ii still is a beast of a photography camera yeah the i know though, the mark iii man. has yeah i know but it's still it's still solid it's not a 7d in speed but Getting a full-frame camera for that price is ridiculous.
0: Well, you have the 6D now, though, that's in the Not same true, price range. Yeah. You can get a U6D for about $850 to $900. And maybe that would be the other option to look at is the 60. if you're really looking for low-light performance, although it is missing the headphone jack, and there is no solution around that that I know of right now. Now, last thing on the list here is a lens. Devin put this in the show notes, and I was kind of smiling when I saw it a f 0.75 lens considered to be the world's fastest lens uh you know that no one was really asking for but this has all of the aperture uh, looking breaking at all speed thing. records now, the
1: fastest lens it's faster than the light that passes through it oh uh, look at the how sad some of these pictures
0: are though like they're the <laughs> softest monster truck in pictures I've seen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Boca does look good from the images on this Kickstarter. Devin, what do you know about this lens?
1: Uh, I know that it vignettes hard, and it's super soft when it's wide open, and I think that it's a bit
0: silly. And it's soft.
1: And I think especially for the price, people should think twice about buying this. This lens has a look to it. It has a characteristic, especially when it's wide open. Um, The best way I can characterize it actually is just uh, old glass uh, because it seems to have... the same kind of things you'd find with an older piece of really fast glass. Like if you've got an old Canon FD 1.2 and you open that up to 1.2, you'll kind of get a similar image to this. Maybe not as much vignetting and maybe a little bit more sharpness. There's a bit of purple fringing going on too around these edges. Yeah, and you'll get purple fringing because, guys, it's a lot harder than just like, oh, make the glass bigger and it'll make shallower depth of field uh, in terms of getting a sharp image with a lot of contrast there's a lot that goes into it well and you have to reduce uh, your
0: corrective elements too because every element you add reduces the amount of light that passes through so it's really getting up there they're they're trying to accomplish this with you know three maybe four elements now i'm seeing a micro four thirds version which is a 42 millimeter f zero seven five, and a full frame version which is a 50 millimeter f0.75 pricing Holy crap a hundred or eighteen hundred bucks for the micro four thirds and two thousand five hundred dollars mm-hmm. for the full frame are you on pins and needles for this lens devin?
1: <laughs> absolutely not. I think that uh, uh micro four thirds will probably get okay coverage and there probably won't be a lot of vignetting uh, but it's still one of those situations where uh, it's just like, you aren't gaining a lot. I I know like numbers wise, you're gaining a lot from like an, a a 1.2 to like the 0.75. But in terms of usability, um, it's not even just, uh, a vignetting, but you also lose a lot of sharpness in all the corners. Uh, and I think that for anyone who's doing video work, having sharpness with things in the corner is kind of important when you're doing like, rule of thirds and things like that, and you're doing talking heads. For photography, it's different. Like, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, and I can be wrong, because I'm not a photographer, but uh, if you have a, a photos like they're showing here that are kind of soft and stylized and stuff like that, that's okay. You can have a soft photo, and it can still create an impression and everything else, but I feel like video-wise, if you have soft video that looks out of focus, I feel like that just gives people headaches in terms of, like, them trying to, like, focus on something that they can't focus on Uh, I think video there's a lot more necessary for proper contrast and proper sharpness all over the image uh, than necessarily in photography you can kind of stretch it and be more artistic with it because when it's a flat image you know you're kind of looking at a flat image where I feel like video is more you're looking through the window into this other world so having a proper representation of that other world can be really important so now, it's one more own, stop but...
0: than the F-075, but if you do want all the aperture today and you don't <laughs> want to wait, uh, there is, of course, the Miticon Speedmaster 50mm F0.95. Uh, for already, half the price. Already out there. <laughs> yeah, you can get this for as low as $700 if you look around. Uh, it's a pretty decent lens. Uh, personally, for filmmaking in general, uh, F1.2 is too shallow depth of field for most things. And I would most often recommend shooting absolutely somewhere around F1-4 or F2. Uh, what do you mean comes absolutely comes from the
1: none? guy who does shallow depth of field on everything. So I the do. Guy
0: who- but, okay, here's the deal. If I have something that's stationary, and I really want to like, focus someone on what they're looking at, so I just have one face or one item that I want to really make pop, then F1-2 or F1-4 is fine. But if I'm following people around in a room and I have two or three people and I need to move back and forth between them, I'm going to lean towards F2.8 or even F4 if I can because it gives you a little bit of soft background but it allows enough room to actually get your freaking focus on the characters. Otherwise, you know, it only takes a, a slight adjustment in approach to the camera, and the guy is out of focus, his face is out of focus, the person behind him is not in focus, and the entire shot is messed up. And I don't have a focus puller to run around with me all day, so <laughs> because of that, I cheat that, and go up to five and, six on a regular basis.
1: And as somebody who actually owns a 25 millimeter uh, T 0.95 from SLR magic for micro four thirds mount, because yeah, 0.95 seems like, oh, that could actually be really usable for micro four thirds. It's still a little too shallow and the contrast is still not great. And there is color fringing and it is a little soft. Now, when I step that down to 1.2 or 1.3, it actually looks really solid and really nice. Um, but keep that in mind is that while something like a piece of Canon glass that advertises F 1.4 in most of the tests, you'll see it nails contrast and sharpness at 1.4, maybe not as good as it will at like, you know, F eight or something like that. But for the most part, it nails it. And you aren't going to really be able to tell the difference, uh, if you close it down a little bit, unless you're pixel peeping where these kind of lenses that you see, these specialty lenses that go all the way down to, uh, you know, F one or below, you'll usually end up losing a lot of sharpness and a lot of contrast in order to achieve those numbers uh, just because of the physics involved with doing that. So keep that in mind with um, whether it's SLR Magic or it's, um, uh, what's the German one, Voigtlander? Yeah,
0: Voitlander uh, is wh- the one that I use.
1: Yeah, so whether it's SLR Magic, Voidlander, or this new one, uh, while the spec seems really cool on paper, uh, in actual use, you'll probably rarely use it at that unless you really want to stylize shots. I don't know. So,
0: I, I'm going to disagree with you on this one. Uh, okay. If I'm shooting an interview, and I have not used the SLR Magic, I've used the uh, Voidlander, but uh, 0.95 is roughly about f2 or f1.8 on a full frame body as far as your depth of field mm-hmm. goes, and I'm just doing this off the top of my head, so I could be... I could be a little bit off, but it's it's somewhere around there. So that's enough to separate your background. Uh, still allows for subjects sitting in a chair to drift back and forth. And I feel like the Voightlander, as long as you sort of aim towards the center a little bit, especially in 4K and you scale down or what have you, it's... It's pretty sharp. It looks good, and it gives you that nice sort of soft bokeh in the background that uh, makes the shot interesting. Uh, I've used it before multiple times for sit down interviews and gone straight to f zero point nine five and and been pretty happy with it. So that's my personal experience. Okay. All right.
1: All right. I've I've noticed I've noticed a difference, and maybe it just has to come down to my SLR magic because um, I actually haven't shot mine on 4K yet. So. You know, when
0: we go to NAB together, we're going to have to have your <laughs> SLR magic and my Voightlander side-by-side and yeah. just do some quick and dirty comparisons, because I'm interested to see if it is just uh, me not carrying
1: as much or uh, yeah, an actual... It, it, potentially, because uh, for me, one that I also noticed it on, too, and I realized this, this was a learning experience for me after the fact, is I have an old Canon FD 1.8, 50-millimeter, uh, And beautiful lens. You get them super cheap. And in using that lens, I went and shot something where, for exposure, I ended up having to do everything at, like, f2. And then for something else, I went back and did everything at, like, f1.8, and then I was thinking to myself, I'm like, "Why does my GH3 look so soft? This doesn't make any sense. What did I screw up?" And then I, I realized that that old FD glass, just at 1.8, is a little bit softer than if you do one or two clicks down on the aperture, uh, just because that's the lens it is. Part of that is the pricing, you know, and the technology back then when they were making those old FD lenses the 70s. and everything else. So, yeah, the 70s. So, so there's there's limitations there, but understand that too is that. In the beginning, I made that mistake where I went in like, I was like, oh, whatever's the lowest F I can get, low light for the wind, da da da. da." And then you realize like, you really aren't going to use it that way all the time, depending on what camera format and what shooting situation you're in. And then you also realize, too, that like most lenses really struggle to perform well at those numbers, and most of the time, if you want the sharpest performance out of uh, your camera, you're not going to necessarily use it wide open, depending on the lens. I mean, you get some $1,000 Canon 50mm. All my L lenses
0: (laughs) do just fine at uh, wide open. They do,
1: and you pay for it. That's one of the reasons why that glass is so expensive. My Prime set's like
0: $7,000, so yeah, that's uh, fairly spendy. Um, I will say, though, that as far as practicality goes, uh, make sure you use the right f-stop for the right approach because going down to f two full frame is
1: extremely shallow depth of field. Uh, <laughs> one and, and one thing that I thought was impressive, though, while you talk about your L-Glass, is uh, the Rokinons, their Cine series, which is just their relabeled, de-clicked uh, photography series. Uh, but all of their T1.5 lenses, primes, which are normally f1.4, something like that, uh, those cine gla- I'm surprised at how sharp they are at 1.5, at least the 85 Very that I've used looking. and the 50. So that's something to consider is that it's not L series, but I have been impressed at what those lenses do when you slam them wide open.
0: Now, I don't know if you've seen it, Devin, but the B&H has a special on that right now where they, show, or they sell the entire Rokinon kit. And it's yeah. uh, it starts at 24, goes 35, 50, 85, and then I believe it even covers the 135 that they just released recently. And oh, it's really? it's like two thousand three hundred dollars, and all of them are geared. All of them are F or excuse me, T 15 and that's a. It seems like a pretty darn good bargain, and they have it it's, in Sony mount. It's a mount.
1: really good deal.
0: They have it in Canon mount. They have it in – I mean, it's a little ridiculous. You can get the uh, Micro Four Thirds mount as well, but if you're going to do that, you might as well just buy an adapter and adapt so that you can use the lenses on other bodies.
1: My my recommendation is has always been, whether I'm wrong or not, has always been uh, when you get like these Nikon glasses is to get the Nikon – or the Rokinon – to get the Nikon F mount. Uh, because you can put a small shim on the Nikon and still attach that to your Canon, your C300s or your 5Ds or whatever else. And then at the same time, you can then use speed boosters or built-in ND uh, filters and stuff like that for bringing it to micro four thirds. But if you buy it in the Nikon mount, that's the longest flange distance. So you're going to be able to basically attach that to any camera you want. And since there's no electronics on any of these lenses... You don't really need to worry about missing out on getting, like, an EF mount to your micro four-thirds body so you can do autofocus and things like that. So uh, they are cheap, but part of that, too, is because they are completely manual. There is no electronics in it
0: at all. So, And here are the, for those of you watching the video, here are the kits that I was speaking about on Uh, B&H, $1,996. It does look like it excludes the 135, but it includes the 24, the 35, the 50, and the 85, all T1.5s, geared and ready to mount on Canon, Sony, Nikon, and all of the rest. That is an extremely affordable...
1: You, you know what? You know what's crazy too is that like somebody out there who's like, "Hey, should I get a C one hundred Mark II uh, because I want to shoot you know short films or something like that?" And they're going to spend like how much is that? Four thousand dollars or something for a yeah, C100 roughly. Mark II? I think
0: it's thirty five hundred dollars now.
1: Like thirty five hundred dollars, it's like tell them no, go get a T three I T four I. And buy this kit of lenses, and it'll look way better than if you just got yourself a C100 and some kind of like mediocre uh, kit lens on top of that. Uh, lenses make a huge difference, as well as lights and everything else, guys. But uh, if you're budgeting gear, you should probably be spending more on lenses than anything else. And you should probably still be spending more on lighting than you do on your camera. And you should be spending just as much on audio as you do on your camera gear. So,
0: And don't forget lights.
1: I added that to the list you weren't paying
0: attention I was not I was actually staring at these lenses again and
1: then I looked the said I said, the price I, I of the I said you'll spend the most on lenses but you should be spending more on your lights than on your camera body all right and then this show is should brought be to you by
0: Rainier which I just drank a whole, <laughs> whole one of this is the uh, seasonal winter jubilee and it is a local favorite from what I understand uh,
1: Devin before we go what are you drinking man I'm drinking water. What? I gotta, yeah. Normally, I'm drinking some kind of caffeinated piece of crap, but uh, I gotta get to bed early tonight. I got to get up at four tomorrow for a very early call time. So. Oh man. All right. On that note, guys, Devin, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Devocut.
0: And of course, guys, you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and anywhere podcasts are distributed. Be sure to swing over to DSLRFilmNoob.com for some updates. Also, you can hit us up on Twitter. You can find me at DSLRFilmNoob. And we like your questions, comments, and concerns, so send those in on the YouTube channel or on the Reddit thread. Either one of those are great places to contact us. And we will see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Filmnoob.